Thank you for choosing to listen to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast. For more resources and information on our church or our team, please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Woohoo! Yes! Come on, man. Mm. Who's excited to be here today? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. We're excited to have you here, Tim. Thank you. Uh, can you believe we met? Yeah, Joe's so, so excited. Okay. I think this is the 9 a.m. service, right? So whoever's here had to really want to be here. Hey, we made it. So welcome. If you're a visitor, if you're a new person, I want to just commend you for getting the time right. Because believe me, that's a process on its own. We've discovered that. Um, if you are a member of Hope Rock Church or this is your family, welcome. Uh, we're so excited that we're finally here. We made it to two services. If you can imagine, it was a stretch there for a while where we were praying about this, trusting God for it. But here we are. And so at this point, it's just full steam ahead. God's going to do something. We don't know what he's going to do. We have no expectations in terms of, or maybe not expectations is the wrong word. We have many expectations, but we have no demands placed on God. You know, he's going to do what he needs to do in his timing. And so I just want to honor everybody that made this possible in terms of just facilitating, praying for, and being a part of this team. I know it's not easy. I said this in the prayer meeting this morning that this is going to require double the amount of effort, double the amount of time, double the amount of energy. But you know what? We're doing this because we all feel like God's taking us in this direction. So thank you for just hearing God. If you are a visitor, um, you can just sign up for serving in this church wherever you I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, just two quick announcements before we go any further. You, you might have noticed, I'm not sure if you did, it is really early, so you might have just breezed by it. But outside in the lobby is a poster board with our proposed new venue. So this is just to give you a little bit of something to dream about. We are caddy corner away from a space just on the opposite side of this parking lot in the corner is another space that when we took this space, we put a first sort of right of refusal on that space, knowing that one day we would grow big enough uh, to be able to fill that space as well. And we're at that stage in our lives. And so we just want you to dream with us as our church uh, and look at these plans outside there. Go spend some time. You don't have to look at the detail. But effectively what's going to happen is it's going to turn this space that we're in here into our children's space, including this room here. So what we will have is more space for our kids, more space for kids' ministry. Um, it's just by virtue of the fact is where, where God has placed us, we have families that have 400,000 children. Um, <laughs> And I love kids. We have many kids too. So like we just have a lot of kids. And so you might think, but you know, there's empty seats here. Yeah, the problem is every two adults come with five kids. So in some cases. Uh, and so we do need more space for our children. We also want to break up the classes a little bit more into more age-appropriate groups. So I'm excited. I know that God's going to do things. We believe that the youth is... Uh, or is going to be a big key into the future of this local church. And so we celebrate this. So please be praying with us, praying for us. Please be trusting that God will provide everything that he needs to provide to, to make this dream a reality. Uh, and we will be setting up one of these days a walkthrough of the new venue as well. Once we're a little bit closer and, you know, the leases have been finalized and all this stuff. But we'll do a walkthrough and just take you through the empty space so you can dream a little bit more as well. Second announcement, very exciting. You know, God always speaks to us through capacity, I believe. God gives us influence and capacity when he's doing things. And so I've got some exciting news for us as a church family, because next week Sunday we get to ordain new deacons, people that are going to be part of our leadership team here at Hope Rock Church. And so these are the couples. We're going to be ordaining Micah. Yes, you can give them a hand. 
So on Cassie Marino, train Kelsey Stanton, Mike and Kelly Beck. And just so all you guys know, those applauses were for everyone. It wasn't just for Micah, although we are super excited about Micah. Um, but yeah, we're going to be doing this at our 9 a.m. service. We do this publicly. We ordain deacons publicly because ultimately we believe that God has called them to be leaders in this local church. And so if you can be here next week Sunday, I imagine everyone that's here at the 9 a.m. service will be here again. I'm sure there'll be other people that want to come and celebrate with them. But yeah, we're excited because when God adds leaders, it's because he wants to do more in and through this local church. We can't do things on our own. We have to rely on God raising up leaders in our church to reach the people he's called us to reach. Amen? Cool. Okay, so those are the announcements. I'm going to start my activity here. You know, Apple's got a new activity. It's called preaching. You earn steps and points, and you get like, it's really cool. Like, I've been about 1,000 calories. I'm joking. I'm starting my stopwatch. Okay, it is really early. No one's got a sense of humor yet. <laughs> Thanks, love. Oh, yeah, it was a good one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, that was, Mark, that was a fake laugh. Okay. And just so you know, I don't fight with my wife at home. Just so you know. Okay. Not everyone's fighting with their spouses. Okay. <laughs> For the benefit of those of you that are new to Hope Rock Church, you'll realize now that we are a church that loves and celebrates fun. We don't think church has to be a super serious place. We do, we do deal with serious stuff, but we're super excited. We've been speaking over the last few weeks, over probably two weeks now, this is the third week, on a series called Kingdom Values. And these values are essentially the sort of guiding posts that keep us as a church heading in the right direction. We know that with growth, with uh, success, or with failure, it doesn't matter which side you look at it, comes a whole lot of challenges. And what these values are designed to do is for us to always look at them, hold them very highly in our own lives so we can keep heading in the right direction. We don't want to get lost. We don't want to get distracted. We want to stay where Jesus wants us. In the first week, we looked at the value of community and how important it is that we are both connected and integrated into a local church. Then last week, Sunday, we looked at the value of the big church, the global church, the universal church, you know, the church that exists in every corner of the world. And uh, I said something last week, which I just want to reiterate. I said that the church is the only mechanism that God has entrusted to this world to effect true and lasting change. That is God's plan for this world. There is no other plan. Jesus came, died, and Matthew 16 told Peter that on the revelation of who he was, he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so I said something last week that I just want to remind us of. The church is not a defeated church. It's not a retreating church. It's a victorious church. It's a church that is storming the gates of hell, literally. And we're going to take back the ground that the enemy has stolen. And that leads us into this morning. Because this morning I want to focus on maturity. I know it's really an exciting topic. You know, everyone loves to talk about maturity. You know, I mean, we're all super mature people. I mean, and so we're like, oh, here we go, maturity. This is going to be a hard one. But I really believe that in order for us to be the church that God wants us to be, to grow up into the things he wants us to grow up into. He wants his children to mature, right? None of us wants our kids to stay kids. I mean, I know we look at the cute stage. Like we look at Abby. Where's Abby? She's not here. She's super cute. You're looking like, man, I wish I could freeze this moment in time. But then later on in the day, you're like, I don't want to freeze this moment in time anymore, right? Because you realize that actually it comes with its own challenges. And so we look at our children and our prayer for our kids is one day that they'll grow up to be mature, mighty men and women of God, right? That's our dream. That's our hope. God's dream for the church is exactly the same. And I say that for the church because what this world doesn't need is a sort of weak, perhaps feeble, stumbling, maybe childlike church. What this world needs is a powerful church. You see, a mature church is a powerful church. And I believe God wants to remind us of some of those things this morning. So let's pray and then we can jump right in. Father, thank you. For our time together, thank you for just, you know, being a God that honestly has so much grace for us, even when we don't deserve it. You pour yourself out on us over and over again, Lord. And I know you probably look at us thinking, why can't you mature faster, Lord? And I just pray this morning that you would help us to. 
Uh, give us the strength that we need. Give us the power that we need. Give us the determination that we need. Uh, and help us get to where you want us to get to. Lord, we commit this meeting, this day, and everything that we do in this church into your hands. And we pray your will be done and not ours. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this issue of maturity is not just a 21st century problem. It's not just uh, about us in Lakeway or the church in America or the global church. or It's not about all the churches in the modern age. It's, it's been around forever. This, this issue has actually been in existence the moment the church got established. You know, the, the great fathers of the church were dealing with maturity their whole lives. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 is a great example of that. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Here we have an interesting church, right? This is the Hebrew church, the same church that the Holy Spirit was poured out in, on Pentecost in Jerusalem. This is the ultimate outcome from Pentecost was this Hebrew church. It was the church in Jerusalem, a church that was at this point in time when you know, the author of Hebrews is reminding them he's going through some really difficult times. A church that started off so powerful, so strong, so filled with the Spirit. But now we're dealing with issues like famines and issues like division. In fact, what the author of Hebrews is telling the church is you need to move beyond the basics effectively. Get over the foundational stuff. You need to move to the important stuff. Get done with the elementary stuff. I mean, listen, this church, to be honest, was fighting about things that were really insignificant. They were fighting about what should they eat? You know, could we eat you know, pork or not? Should we call ourselves Jews first and then Christians or Christians and then Jews? What about you know, people that are Gentiles? Do we accept them into the church? These are the fundamentals that these guys were caught up in. And beyond that, they were still wrestling with what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I get it. They came from very religious backgrounds. They grew up Jewish. And so this was a big mind shift. But this is long after the Holy Spirit was poured out. And most of those people in the church saw Christ in the flesh, saw him on the cross, saw him resurrect, and saw him ascend into heaven. Yet they're still fighting about the elementaries of the faith. And what that tells me is we can have a revelation of who Jesus is, but we might never grow up. And so Paul's reminding, not Paul, ah, you see I've let the cat out the bag. I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to backtrack the author of Hebrews because nobody really knows is reminding the church that, yes, you can have a revelation of Jesus, and that's a good thing. Foundations are important. We build off of our foundations. But God is desiring to build a house on top of the foundations. You know, if you go and find a piece of land, and you lay the foundation, and you're like, man, look how excited this is. Everyone's excited. We've got the foundation. 20 years later, you come back. It's still a foundation. You're like, okay, well, that's great. When can we live in this house now? It's the same for us. Our faith is the same. We've got solid foundations. Now we need to build up. Now, if God was sort of reminding the Hebrew church about their immaturity through the author of Hebrews. I wonder if we had to think about it, what would, the God, what would God be saying to us today? What would the author of Hebrews want to tell the modern church? What would he want to say to us today? Would he say to us, Hope Rock Church here in Lakeway, it's time to move on and beyond the elementary principles of this world and move into the deeper stuff? Or would he be commending us? I'm not too sure that at all times we act maturely. And I say that and I'm speaking to myself in particular. And so I think that there's room to grow. But what I do know if we look at the global church is over the last 50 years, we've seen an explosion of new and better ways to do church, right? There's been so many different models that have been sort of created and sort of patented. Literally, some of them are literally programs and models that people have almost copyrighted. Ways to reach people and ways to change the world. But what I see often, and in most cases, is not a maturing church. I see a church that's, in most cases, declining from maturity. And I'm saying this to us as a church because we need to be careful of this. This is to remind us to never become like that. 
I want to use an example this morning, and I'm not attacking this example. I'm just trying to give you an example of what I'm saying. If you look at the seeker-sensitive church movement, which, interestingly enough, has not, is not a modern-day innovation. It has existed throughout the millennia, just in different shapes and in different forms. But the most recent form of this seeker-sensitive movement, which I believe is really you know, part of the enemy's great deception, is that it starts off with this really noble idea. This idea that we want to get as many unchurched people, lost people, people that are broken and sinful into church as possible. And so that sounds like a good idea, and it is a good idea. We want to get people saved. The challenge is what you end up doing is enticing people and attracting people to come into church. And so inadvertently, I believe that what you end up doing is producing immature Christians. Because if I have to attract you or to entice you to come to church, then I must be doing something that tells me that what I'm doing here is very similar to what the world is doing out there. And so the problem I have with all of this, and the problem that I think it's perpetuating, is that when we think of the church and we start to put gimmicks and tricks to it on how we can get people to come to church and stay to church with the intention of growing the church, we forget that actually it's not about us attracting people, it's about us allowing the Holy Spirit to convict people. Charles Spurgeon said this, and it just blows my mind. He says, if you have to give a carnival to get people to come to church, then you'll have to keep giving carnivals to keep them coming back. The Tractional Church uses this word, cultural relevance. And what they're saying by that is when people step out of the world into the church, they shouldn't even know they've left the world. That's how comfortable it should be. We don't want people to be offended. We don't want people to have to deal with their sin. We don't want people to feel like we are different to anybody else. We're all the same. And the problem with that is, well, then what's the point? And so I believe it's fueled a level of immaturity in the church today. It's caused people that are leading churches to become keepers of an aquarium where all we are ever concerned about is how comfortable the people are in the church. Are the seats fine? Is the coffee warm enough? Is the food great? You know, is the temperature right? Is the music good? Is there enough lighting? Whatever. And all we do is focus on the aesthetics of church. But God called us to be fishers of men. And so my point is this. When people's comfort takes the priority when your comfort starts to dictate what I say and when I'm preaching or anybody else that's preaching from this pulpit because we have many preachers in this church, when your comfort, my comfort, our comfort starts to determine the message of God, then guess what's going to happen? What's going to go out the window? The gospel. Because guess what? The gospel is not comfortable. The gospel is good news. The best news we've ever been told, but it's not comfortable. The gospel forces us to look into the mirror. Realize that without Christ, we are doomed and hopeless and lost, that we are not good people, that we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Paul says it this way in Acts 20, verse 25. He says, And now, behold, I know that none among you whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There's a couple of interesting terms that Paul uses here. He uses this term, proclaiming the kingdom. It's interesting because sometimes we, we think that he means, I didn't stop from declaring the gospel to you so you could get saved. That's not what Paul's saying in this context. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church, a church that he's recently planted, a church that he's now leaving, going back to Jerusalem so he can be imprisoned and ultimately sent to Rome for his death. And he's speaking to the elders in the church. Leave that slide up there, grow. He's speaking to the elders of the church. And so when he says to them, I didn't, when he uses this term proclaiming the kingdom, he's saying, I came to you and I told you about the length, the breadth, the depth, the height of Christ's love. I told you the hard stuff, the good stuff, and everything in between. 
He goes on to say this, And I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Genesis to Revelations. Dealing with issues of sin. Dealing with issues of holiness. Dealing with issues that are uncomfortable to talk about. Dealing with the fact that the God that we serve is a holy God. Who wants to be at the center of our lives. Not a peripheral thing. We're so quick to add Jesus to our lives. But Jesus doesn't want to be added to our life. He wants to be our life. Paul says, I didn't stop from doing any of that stuff. I preached it all. The whole counsel of God. Our job as leaders in the local church, as ministers in the local church, and I'm including you in this. You'll see, I'll get to this a bit later, is to preach the whole counsel of God to the world. We don't have to dupe people into the kingdom. You know, we don't have to do that shuffling three cup trick. Where's the wisdom, where's the wisdom, whatever the thing is under the cup, whatever it is. We don't have to do that. The truth is more powerful. The gospel is more able to convict people of sin than any fancy gimmicks or tricks. And so how do we grow in maturity? How do we make sure that we head in the right direction? Now, I believe that maturity comes with some characteristics. And please, again, I'm speaking to this first aiming at me. I'm taking this and applying it to my own life because I struggle with some of these areas often. If I'm honest, I, I do. And so like, I need to work on some of this stuff. And so let's turn to Ephesians 4. In the remaining time we've got left, I'm going to just highlight four, maybe five, maybe ten. I don't know, points. I'm just kidding. Just four points. Okay, 9 a.m. is going to be the funny service, guys. You've got to have a sense of humor. Okay, we're tired enough as it is. Let's laugh at least. Ephesians 4 verse 1. Sort of first point in the first characteristic of maturity is this word unity. Uh, Tim's got that shirt on today. It says unity. I was laughing at him earlier because I didn't say anything to him, but I saw it had unity on it. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Remember that term and that phrase, worthy of the calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You're probably wondering if you know me, well, you're probably thinking, there goes Marco, and now we're talking about unity again. I can't go three weeks without talking about unity, guys. You know why? Because I'm passionate about it. In fact, I honestly believe that God can't honor this local church unless we're a unified church. You see, when we honor each other, God can honor us. And so I want to talk about unity at every possible opportunity. I want to talk about unity on a Sunday morning. I want to talk about unity in staff meetings. I want to talk about unity in elders meetings. I want to talk about unity in the deacon team. I want to talk about unity in the serving teams. I want to talk about unity every day. Unity holds this church together, and God honors unity. But Paul uses this interesting phrase. He says, that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Now, the calling here is not the anointing. It's not what God's called you to do in this world. I believe this calling that Paul is referring to is from John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus himself said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. Another way you could say draws is calls. This verse speaks of salvation. It speaks about us coming to know who God, the God of the universe, the creator God of everything is. And if we start to think about walking in a manner that's worthy of our calling, what Paul is telling us is, in other words, we need to look at other people in our lives, in our interpersonal relationships, in church, in the same way Christ looks at us. Think about it. God paid the price for sins that he never committed. He pours grace on us that we don't deserve. And he invites us in to be a part of a kingdom that we could never build. That's the God that we serve. But what we do, if we're honest, is we like people that are like us. We hang out with people that agree with us. People that are strange or different, we don't like. Sometimes we just disregard them entirely. 
And before you think, well, okay, but are we, aren't we different from the world? I'm talking about our relationships in church. I'm not talking about how we operate in the world. That's another whole discussion. I'm talking about how we operate in the church. We gravitate to people like us. We want to hang out with people that are the same as me. And if people disagree with me or have another view or another opinion, then I just sort of shut them out of my life. And I'm not talking about the essentials of the faith. I'm talking about other stuff, the superfluous, periphery stuff in our lives. And so walking in a manner worthy of our calling is about loving people the same way Jesus loves us. That's what it is. Love people. If we can love each other, we will be united. Paul goes on to give us a list of some things that unite us. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One body, one spirit, one hope to your call. This call is a one call hope, one call spirit, one call Lord, one call faith, one call baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Friends, seven facts about unity in the church is this. We were saved into one church. There isn't a church for Jews and a church for Gentiles. There isn't a church for slaves and free. There isn't a church for the rich and the poor. There isn't a church for Democrats and one for Republicans. There isn't a church for those that are masked or unmasked. And there isn't a church for the vaccinated and one for the unvaccinated. There is one church. There is one spirit. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that lives in me. That's the same spirit that lives in you, which means you and I have more in common than we have apart. There's one hope. And then guess what that hope is? It's not hope that you'll win the lottery. It's not hope that you'll get the promotion. It's not hope that, you know, you'll get the next best thing in your life. The one hope that we have is we will all be in heaven where every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Everybody. Not segregated, not separated, not you can go there and those of you can come here and those who like to play Monopoly go to that side. Those who like to play that other web game we played, things, whatever it is, go there. No, one heaven where we're all invited to the party. In fact, Jesus goes to great lengths to talk about the kingdom of God, how it's a tree, and on the tree are many birds of different kinds. If you want to find unity in the church, it's at the foot of the cross. If you want to find unity in this world, it's not through a political movement, it's definitely not through a rally or a social organization, it's at the foot of the cross. There's one Lord. The church has one Lord, you know that. Not multiple Lords. Not the most popular political candidate for the next presidency. One Lord. Jesus Christ. Not money, not power, not greed, not any system of this world. One Lord. Paul says there's one faith. Our faith is not in anything that, man, that is man-made. Our faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that we've been saved. By faith. Not as a result of our own works. So that no man may boast but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. One baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that adds all of us into the new covenant, the new church. Not this baptism. Paul is trying to unify people. He's not talking about, do we baptize people when they're born? Do we baptize people when they're older? When do we baptize? He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're all baptized into the family of God together. And then he ends off with one Lord, one Father of all, who is in all, through all, amongst every one of us. We let the world divide us every day across party lines, across personal preference, across everything. But Paul says there is one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one gospel. The second characteristic of maturity is variety. I say variety is the spice of life, right? I don't even know what that means. 
but it sounds pretty awesome, right? It's different. Okay, it's different. I just like to eat spicy food. Okay. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each, one of us, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We'll talk about Christ's gifts shortly. But Paul moves on. He's protected the unity of the church. And now he wants to protect the diversity in the church. It's interesting. Those two topics go hand in hand. Unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. I mean, have you ever thought of another place in the world where like a, a group of us could gather like this, so different to one another and be united? It doesn't work. People have tried to do it in the world outside there all the time. They try to unite people around a common goal. It never works. There's only one thing that can unite us, and that's Christ. So diversity is to be celebrated. And what Paul's telling us is that each part in this church, each of us have a critical and important role to play in the life of the church. God has deposited in Kelly gifts that I don't have, in Kat gifts that I don't have, in Alessio gifts that I don't have. And what it takes is all of us to come together and understand the talents, the ability, the gifting, and the anointing that God has given to each of us is for the benefit of the body, not for just me. Mm -hmm. Honestly, if I had to just take my gift and sit in my closet all day and just look at myself in the mirror and preach to myself every day, it really would be quite boring. Okay? But again, it wouldn't benefit anybody else, right? And so God's created us to be these communal beings that need one another. The way I love to view this picture is that the church is really, a, it's a puzzle or a tapestry. You know, people use the picture of a tapestry. But each of us are a piece of the puzzle. And guess what? Each piece is pretty cool. Some pieces are just the sky, right? Those are the worst pieces because they're hard to figure out where they go, right? Some, be, some pieces are hard to figure out where they go. Don't get me wrong. Some of us are hard to fit in. And that's, that's me. I was, people struggled to put me into anything, okay, for many years of my life. And so I knew what it felt like to be the sky, that piece of blue towel. But there were other blue towels like me, similar to me, but different. And then there's pieces that are going to be the mountains or the scenery or the animals, which you know, are going to be a part of that. But it's only when we step back with every piece interlocking with one another do we really realize what this thing is. And every time one piece decides that that doesn't want to be a part of the puzzle, you know how frustrating is Have you ever lost a piece of a puzzle? Yeah. My mother used to be passionate about puzzles. In fact, she still says, she'll do like... I don't know, 15,000 piece puzzles. It was ridiculous. Whatever. It felt like it was a lot. I was small, okay? It felt like 15. And she'd, lose, like, she'd look for one piece. You can't find it. You know, you, at the end, there's one piece missing. You're like, oh my gosh, this whole thing's a mess. Friends, we need every piece of the puzzle. What that also tells me, and I just want to say this before I move on to the next point is we don't have to become robots in this church. We don't have to become carbon copies of each other. We don't have to become yes men or yes women. We don't all have to agree on everything all the time. We're allowed to have opinions. We're allowed to have differing thoughts. We're allowed to engage in conversations. It's okay. We don't have to look at the person next to us and say, I wish I could be more like them or like them. Or I wish I could sing like Lindsay sings. I wish I could sing like Lindsay sings. I can't. That's not my gifting. God wants us to be less insecure, more free, and more who we are created to be. I think if we just stopped trying to be other people, we would see this church move a lot faster. And I'm speaking about myself in particular. Third point, or the third characteristic of maturity, is understanding that it's about us, not about them. And I'll explain this in a little bit more because that seems very confusing. But let me tell you, Ephesians 4 verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, we could honestly spend weeks just on these three verses. Seriously, there's a lot here. 
but we don't have weeks. And so let me try and just unpack as it relates to maturity what I think God wants to tell us this morning. We introduced in this passage to the fivefold ministry, just quickly. And so you've got the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Interestingly, these are the gifts that the previous verse spoke about. Jesus Christ died for our sins, went to the cross for us, goes to the tomb, is resurrected, and he goes to heaven, right? He's seated at the right hand of God in all authority, in all power. But before he does that, he conquers death in the grave. In that great exchange, what what ends up happening is Christ comes and gives us gifts. In fact, I want to encourage you all to go and read Psalm 68. What Paul is actually doing is he is doing a commentary in these verses of what happens and what is described in Psalm 68, which is the victory march of a king. It's a, song, it's a psalm of ascension, the king taking his throne. And along the way, he takes all these captives out of these different lands. You and I were captives. Do you know that? We were captive to this world, to the systems of this world, but now we are free. And what Paul says is Jesus, in this great exchange, gives to the church these gifts Apostles, people that plant churches, people that can oversee many churches or regions, have influence over many people. He gives the church uh, prophets. We all know who they are because they're the ones that got it all wrong, right, recently. Okay, I'm just kidding. Don't get angry with me. Don't stone me. Prophets are real friends. They are God's voice piece on this earth, not to say that he can't speak to anyone else, but God definitely used prophetic gifting to speak to people. But guess what? We have to test the prophets. Don't make prophets your God. God is the God. Is what they say Biblical, does it line up with Scripture? And is this what I feel the Lord is telling me? You don't have to believe everything the prophets say. Evangelists, those that have the gift to soften people's hearts, the ability to take a heart of stone and turn it into something that is malleable so that the Holy Spirit can come and turn it into a heart of flesh. And then you've got pastors and teachers. Those two are actually together. In the Greek, those two words are the same. The better way to think of pastors and teachers is a pastor is a teacher who loves people and a teacher is a pastor who's good at expositing God's Word. That's the difference. Same people, same calling, same gifting. Those gifts were given to the church. Now what's more important than the gifts themselves is the reason these gifts were given. Also, just as an aside, you can have more than one gift. You could be prophetic and pastoral in your gifting. And you can have these gifts outside of the church. God gave them to the church to build the church up. But I do believe some people carry up apostolic gifting outside in the marketplace. Some people are pastors at heart because they love people. The best place to operate those gifts is here, but they can be operated out there too. And so God gives us his gifts for a reason. In verse 12 tells us, it says, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? That's right, every one of us. We are the saints. I mean, I know you didn't wake up this morning, look in the mirror and say, look at you, you're a saint. (laughs) I wake up and say, you're a sinner. But we're saints. That's what the Bible calls us. If you've been redeemed by Christ, the blood of his sacrifice was paid for your sins, you have moved from sinner to saint. And so these gifts were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? So that we could build up the body of Christ. Maturity, build it up. For many years, the church has done a great job of making people feel less than, unworthy. Like there was somehow this beautiful differentiation between the sacred versus the secular. The sacred being all of those of us that are working in the church and serving God and priests and bishops and whatever and popes and pastors. You know, we're somehow better than everybody else because we're really where God wants us to be. We're here every day. I mean, you should come here during the week. I'm on my knees here praying all day. That's how holy I am, guys. And so what I do is far more important than what you do. I'm joking, of course, but that's what the church has made people feel like. If you're not spending 99% of your time in the church, you're not where God wants you to be. Wrong. 
Paul says that the gifts were poured out into the church so that we could equip the saints, you and me, for the work of the ministry. There is no sacred and secular. There's only one type of people, and that is the saints. There's no holier than thou. There's no better than me. We're all saints. And guess what? Some saints are called to work in different places. Some of us are called to be church paid or in the realm of the church. Some of us are called to lead companies and organizations. Some of us are called to lead families. Some of us are called to teach children. Some of us are called to go to the nations. Some of us are called to do whatever it is that you're called. Sweep the streets, pick up trash, whatever it is. Whatever your calling is does not determine what your ministry is. Your ministry is first to be a saint and to preach the gospel. And so making it about us and not them means that all of us understand that actually being a part of this church means that we all have a part to play in it. It means that we come here on a Sunday morning not expecting to just receive something, but we come here ready to give something. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about what gifting do you have? What part of the puzzle are you? And how can you add value to this local church? And then when you leave this local church, stop saying to yourself, it's okay, the church will reach those people. No, no. Lord, what do you want me to do to reach those people? Because I'm a saint. My job is to go and do the work of the ministry. All of us. We are not better than anybody else out there. All of us are the same. That's why we truly believe in this local church that everybody's on the same level. There is no hierarchy here. There's just all of us following a leader, and his name is Jesus. The last point, and I'm going to close. Lindsay, you guys can come up. The last characteristic of maturity is love. Paul says in verse 14, he says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Let me just pause there for a second. Paul continues this analogy of maturity, and he's using children now. We love you children, we really do, so don't listen to what I'm going to say next, because I don't mean it like that. But let's be honest, children are gullible. I convinced my kids that the Holy Spirit was a camera in the house for many years, for real. I told them, listen, I'm going to go check the cameras, because I know if you're lying. Arabella the other day said to me in the shower, because I think her mom told her this, that there's a sign above her head every time she lies. You didn't tell her. Well, she figured that out alone. I was like, yes, there's a sign. So don't lie to me. But children are gullible, right? But guess what? So is the church. The church is gullible. We like children at times. We believe things. We listen to things. We let things creep into our hearts and we just accept it as if it's truth. We don't ever bring it back to the word and say, okay, well, how does this line up with scripture? What, is, what does the Bible have to say about this? We just believe it. Children are also very self-centered. I mean, not you guys. And definitely not you guys. But other kids are very self-centered, okay? Just help them not to be self-centered like you. Kids can be self-centered, and we can be self-centered. We made everything about us. And you know what I'm talking about there? We put our fears, our insecurities at the front of our existence. And we make every decision that we decide to do in the life of the church based on what's going to benefit me. If there's anything we've learned from Jesus and His model for us is that we live selflessly. We don't live towards ourselves. We live away from ourselves. Paul goes on to say, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head and into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The better way than behaving like children and being gullible or self-centered is to want to grow up and look like Jesus. You know, we've all heard that. You know, those bracelets, what would Jesus do? Just don't wear them. It's so crazy anyway. You don't have to wear a bracelet. You just have to say, Lord, how do I look more like you? 
I've got a long way to go. I can tell you that honesty. But I think this is where the church gets it wrong. And I think this is where I get it wrong. Maybe you can relate to what I'm about to say. But I know that often, instead of wanting to look more like Jesus, I often want to look more like the world. I say that because often my motivation is fueled by what the world wants, not by what people want. You know, I was talking about the seeker-sensitive church earlier. I'm often fueled by what people think about me. I often want people to like me or people to appreciate me. People to say, well done, Marco. Even though I say, you know, I might not want it, I do want it. You know, and we all struggle with this issue of identity and finding comfort and finding our praise from people instead of going to God. And so I think we do fail when it comes to wanting to be more like Jesus. And so Paul gives us some points. I believe in this verse. It will help us. We've never been called to look like the world. We've been called to look like Jesus. And so maturity is about us learning how to speak the truth in love, not worrying about what people are going to think about us but boldly declaring the truth. And it might offend somebody. That's not our intention. We do it in love. But we stop trying to just pander to people and tell them what they want to hear. Instead, we tell them what the Bible says, what God says about a matter. Maturity is about us adapting to live more like Jesus and not more like the world. We've made all the ideals of the world the things we chase. Perhaps we should start wanting to chase more of the kingdom. Maturity is about us learning not to trust in our own abilities in our 401ks or 403bs or IRAs or investments or businesses or salaries or bank accounts or where we live or what car we drive but instead trusting in Jesus that's maturity is knowing that He is the provider for our lives that we are connected to the vine and we're just the branches maturity is about us holding it all together in love Paul uses this beautiful picture of a body he says that the church is a body and so it's this local church us together today we're connected to each other with sinews and joints and marrow and bones and stuff but even in the global church each church is connected to each other and he's saying the foundation of that through the apostles the prophets the teachers evangelists and pastors is love and you know that Jesus will only come back when the church is mature for him we keep wanting to see the signs of the times Jesus is going to come back if we want Jesus to come back we need to be a mature church because Jesus wants to marry a bride not a child and so I want you to bow your heads thank you for listening to the Hope Rock Church at Lake Travis podcast we are a church that is passionate about knowing Christ and making him known in our city the nation and the ends of the earth for more information on who we are please go to www.hoperockchurch.com or find us on Facebook